We're back in our series on Ecclesiastes. We're looking at life under the sun. And of course we know that that means life viewed just from a very human, very earthly standpoint. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 beginning in verse 1, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead more than the living, which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all of his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good. There is also vanity, yet it is a sore travail. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. And again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I consider all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. We haven't been here for a while, and so we're going to take a very quick review, about a couple of sentence reviews here, and that's all we're going to do. But as I said, Solomon is looking at life under the sun. Life purely as a human being from a human standpoint. He's not considering God. He's not considering heaven. He's not considering hell. He's not considering eternity. He's just talking about how people, and many people today, just look at life. I was born, I'm going to live, and I'm going to die, and that's going to be it. And people today, so many do not even consider eternity and the need of preparing for eternity. I believe the Holy Spirit, I know the Holy Spirit, I believe God through the Holy Spirit directed Solomon to write this book. And one of the reasons I think he did so that all who will read it, like us today, will see that there's more to life than just life under the sun. You know, we're not just living to get from birth to death. If you, especially if you know Christ the Savior, you're living for eternity. You ought to be right now and storing up rewards in heaven. Now the first three verses of this fourth chapter, Solomon talks about oppression. And surely there's oppression in our world. He's already talked about oppression back in chapter 3, verse 16. He said, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there. Now what is oppression? Oppression involves defrauding someone's neighbor. 
It involves cheating someone out of something. It involves sometimes robbing someone, making unjust gains off of someone. And in fact, it is even associated with violence and bloodshed. And so Solomon said there's oppression going on and we can look around today and I think we can see that there's an abuse of power and oppression going on in the world, maybe even in our nation, maybe even where we live. Well, what did Solomon do about it? By the way, let me just point this out right quick. God is not indifferent. God is not vague about oppression. If you study his word, you'll see that Amos the prophet spoke against those who oppress other people. Ezekiel talked about oppression, how wrong it was. Zechariah even talked about the kind of people, widows and orphans and people like that who are often oppressed. So God is not vague about oppression. And Solomon, in looking at oppression, now Solomon's a king. Solomon, if there's oppression in your kingdom, are you doing anything about it? We don't know whether he did or not. But apparently it wasn't enough because he said something about it here in the book of Ecclesiastes. But here's what Solomon said, looking at oppression from a totally under the sun viewpoint. He said, first of all, those who are oppressed don't have a comforter. The oppressors have the power, but those who are oppressed have absolutely no comforter. And that word comforter has the idea of someone to pity them. And it has the idea of someone who will avenge them. And so he said, you have on the one hand, those who have power and abusing it. On the other hand, you have those who are being oppressed, who don't have any way of avenging the oppression. And I think that presents a great difference we have in our world today between the lost and the saved. Both can be oppressed, but the lost don't have anybody to turn to except another man. Who do we have when we're oppressed to turn to? We have the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter of Romans, the Word of God tells us about how we're supposed to act or react to oppression. If you look at verses 17 through 20, it just tells us, first of all, we're not to repay to anyone evil for evil. Now, I know that goes against every bit of human thinking, doesn't it? Don't pay back evil for evil. Then he says, be honest. Now, wouldn't a child of God be honest? Well, we ought to be. And then he says, as much as possible, and some people, I understand why Paul said it this way. There's some people that just won't let you. But he said, just as much as possible, live peaceably with all people. Now, some folks won't let you live peaceably with them. But he says, as much as possible, live peaceably with them. He says, give place to wrath. And then he said, don't avenge yourselves. Don't seek revenge. Now, why did he say that? Well, if you look at the verses that follow, what it says is, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We have someone to comfort us. We have someone to avenge us. Just let God take care of the repayment. That's what we're saying in this this morning. That's what Romans 12 says. Don't worry about those people who oppress you. Just let God take care of the matter. But viewing life under the sun, Solomon says of the oppressed, he says, first of all, those who are already dead are better off. I mean, we're talking about viewing it from a purely human standpoint. Those who have died, because they're out of it. They don't have to worry about oppression anymore, and they're done. And then he goes a little bit farther. And he says, you know what? Because of oppression, it would just be better to have never been born. And that's the look of the humanist. That's the look of the under the sun view of oppression. That those who have never been born, they're the lucky ones. Because not only have they had to deal with it and they're out of it, they'll never have to deal with it. And so that's the world's view 
of this thing of oppression. But then in the next few verses, and this message is entitled, by the way, Better Life Lessons. He's going to tell us how to live life better, how to have a more comforting life. So in the remaining verses, he makes some comparisons, and in those comparisons, he looks at what's happening around him, happening under the sun, and then he gives us instructions for living a better life. And the first thing you notice is it's better to have blessing and contentment. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on contentment because we talked a lot about that last week. But he says it's better to have blessing and contentment. And he's already told us back in chapter 2, verse 24, that work, though we may not think it, work is a gift from God. God gives you the ability to work. God gives you the job to work at. And so God has a present for you, a gift for you, and that is work. But then Solomon presents two types of people. See, anything God can give can be taken to the extremes by sin. And Solomon talks about two different types of people. He names one of them. We'd call him today the workaholic. Look at what he says about him. He said, I considered all travail. That word travail talks about wearying effort. It talks about toil. Here's somebody who is motivated, according to what Solomon says, here's somebody that's motivated pretty much by what people say and people think about him. He wants to present a good picture. He wants to present a good approach, a good attitude to life. Maybe he's even in, motivated by envying his neighbors or his neighbors envy of him. He wants to be lifted up. And so he just works and works and works for success. We call that today, you know, many times, keeping up with the Joneses, you know, that I've just, my, my neighbor's got more, so I've got to have more, and we don't want to be left behind. I said last week, I said it a little different way, but what we do today is we wear ourselves out today working to earn money to buy things that we don't need to impress people we don't like. And so this man just works more and more and more. Verse 4, look what he says in verse 4. He says, again, I consider it all travail in every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. What's the driving force in my life? Is it my ego? Is it envy? What is it? We can have no contentment when we have the wrong motive for the things that we do for the work that we're doing. In fact, what Solomon says, it's like grasping the wind. It's trying to get a hold of the wind. You just, when have you had enough? When have you done enough? He says there's no happiness. But he talks about the opposite of that man, the workaholic. And what does he call him? Here's the man who doesn't care to work at all. What does he say about this individual? Verse 5, he says, The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Instead of being highly competitive, instead of wanting to work, he says, the foolish man just doesn't want to work, doesn't care to work at all. He said they fold their hands and they just do nothing. Now, what does he mean they eat their own flesh? The fool foldeth his hands and he eateth his own flesh. This is not literal, this is figurative. He's telling us something about idleness. He's telling us something about not wanting to work. Disinterest in labor is destructive. In fact, what he's saying is doing absolutely nothing as a human, just to sit down and say, I'm not going to work. I'm going to let others take care of me. 
I'm just going to live my life off of other people and, and their goodness and their kindness. You know what he said? He said, that is destructive to an individual. It destroys their own opinion of themselves. We use the term many times, use it or lose it. You know, you take somebody that has a particular talent. Take a child of God that has a particular talent, but they decide not to use it for the Lord. Many times that talent will just become rusty and not be as good a talent as it ought to be. And so we have to be careful about just sitting down and doing nothing. In fact, what it does, he says here, is it will take away your self-respect. We certainly have a good number of folks like that in our society today. When somebody is reduced to begging, they lose, they begin to lose self-dignity and they begin to lose self-respect. I remember something Erin told me one time. She was in the job she had. She was taking an Asian man out to the airport and ran across some of these people who are just standing out, letting other people support them, letting other people give to them. And this, what this Asian man said is that his family would be disgraced if he were to do something like that. See, being idle and depending on other people causes us to lose our dignity and our self-respect. So Solomon presents those two workers. He presents a workaholic. He presents there's a man that wants to do absolutely nothing, but then he presents another type of individual. If you look at verse 6, he, I call this man the wise worker. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. You know what quietness is? Contentment. Refreshment. He said it's better to have one hand filled and be content with that than to have both hands filled and be filled with travail and vexation of spirit and all of those things that he mentions. It's learning to be satisfied with what God has given you and to be satisfied with where God has put you. There are probably many, many stories that we could hear of people who had made it to the top. They had made millions. They had made all of the money they were going to make and they were still unhappy. They were still unsatisfied in their lives. We often think, you know, if I just had X amount of money, mine is a million. If I just had a million dollars, right? Boy, I'd, I'd be set. Well, I don't know about these days, but years ago I, I thought it might be. But if I just had X amount of money, everything would be fine. I would have no more worries. Do you know what money does? Money creates worries. Money creates worries. Well, what, what kind of worries are you talking about? Well, there's, there's theft. Somebody might steal it. You've got to pay taxes on it. And when you have money, you always have friends, right? And many of those friends are wanting help with whatever project they're doing. So money just creates more worse. But we many times get to feeling that way. Well, Solomon's not saying he's opposed to hard work. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying this, work hard and be content with it. Work hard and be content with what gives you. And progress if God allows it. If God allows you to progress in your job, in your work, just let God do that and thank God for it and bless God with it and serve Him with it. But do not sacrifice who you are and what you are as a child of God just to have a little bit more money. What did Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6? Godliness with contentment is great gain. What did he say? We studied last week in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11 through verse 13. He said, I have learned in whatever state, whatever condition I am, therewith to be content. You know what that's called? Called learning to live within your means. 
Many years ago when I first started pastoring, I was pastoring a particular church and Joni was working. You know, we had a pretty good income and if we went to Walmart and something was $40, if we wanted it, we got it. I left that church. I went to another one. She wasn't working. And I've, when I've gone from church to church, I've never gone up on the pay scale. I've always gone down. I haven't figured this out yet. And so what they paid the pastor was a little bit lower. And we'd go to Walmart and if something was $4, we'd scratch our heads and wonder if we really needed it, you know. Learn to live within your means. There's a line from an old song by a singer, and you may have heard of her named Janice E, and she says, we live beyond our means on other people's dreams, and that's succeeding. That's not succeeding, but we call it that. Learn to live within your means. So Solomon talks about being content. It's better to live a life of contentment as a child of God. But then he's going to tell us this. It's better to have the benefit of companionship. The benefit and the blessing of companionship. It's talking about working with others. And the first thing he does is he presents the life of the person we'd call the loner. We might call him a recluse. He's going to show us the value of friendship. He's going to show us the value of companionship. He says the recluse has no child, has no family, has no spouse, is alone and yet labors endlessly being alone. It's not that they don't have any wealth. They just don't have anyone to leave the wealth to when they're gone. And so he'll ultimately ask, why am I knocking myself out? Why am I laboring so hard? I have no one to leave this to, and so why am I trying to climb the ladder of success? You see, wealth and power and position, simply for the sake of those things, Solomon says, is just nothing but vanity and vexation of spirit. He said it's grasping the wind. But he's encouraging us in companionship, in laboring together. Someone suggested, and I fully agree, that many today have lost the sense of connection, the sense of community. And listen, you see it in churches all the time. I have seen in churches that there are people who, instead of being concerned with what is best for the body, they've got their own agenda. And you support me in my agenda, or I'll just go somewhere else. The church better get behind my agenda financially. And if the church doesn't get behind my agenda financially, I'll go to somewhere that'll get behind my agenda financially. Well, that's not being a part of, of the church body. That's not being a part of the church family. Listen, a church is not to be a grouping of different-minded individuals just doing their own thing. We are a body. We are a family. And I'm thankful we have that attitude here at Bethel. But the quickest way to destroy a church is just to get it made up of a bunch of individuals that are wanting their own agenda, wanting to do their own thing, and you can have infighting and, and destruction in the church immediately. Satan knows that. I want to give you an example, and this may not be the best in the world, but I think it's a pretty good one. If you go to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, you start reading about all these people who live by faith. And it begins with Noah, and, and well, it begins with Abel, and, begins with, and then talks about Noah, and you know, on down the line, Abraham and Sarah and all of these. And Hebrews 11, 6, 11, 16 tells us this. These all had one goal. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. They were united in a goal. Now they didn't, they lived apart from each other. They lived in different eras. But they had one goal and that is a heavenly country. Verse 15 says they were not mindful of that country from which they came out. For if they had been, they might have had opportunity to return. 
And verse 13 says they all died in faith, all died trusting the Lord. But they committed themselves to one goal, one purpose, and that is serving the Lord. 40 to 50 years ago, now I'm going to go back. I've been pastoring during these years, okay? 40 to 50 years ago, folks, there was a sense of connection. There was a sense of community in churches. And again, I'm thankful that we have that sense here. But too many churches today and too many of God's people are losing ground to the demands of the world. You know, instead of being just a bunch of individuals coming together once a week, and that's what churches are becoming, a menagerie of special interest groups, churches ought to be a body. They ought to be a family. What affects you should affect me. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul talked about over in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He said he used the human body as the illustration. Now, if you injure your little toe, that's not much, is it? Little toe, you have trouble walking, don't you? And sometimes it affects the whole body. A few weeks ago, I had a little back issue. And the way I gave to it caused my knee to start hurting. I mean, your body is just interdependent upon one another. And that's the way a church is. And if one church member hurts, we all hurt. And if one church member glories, we all glory together. That's what we are supposed to be. Churches at one time were like that. Somebody said this, we're busier than ever and make less time for companionship in the church today. And that's true. We've got so many things going on, we don't have time. You look at the early churches, the first century churches, and you know what you find? These folks spent a lot of time together. They saw each other probably daily. You know what we do today? We meet together twice on Sunday and not everybody shows up. And we meet together on Wednesday and not everybody shows up. It's no wonder churches are disconnected today. We don't have that fellowship with one another. We don't have that coming together as often as many did. Somebody said this, and I agree with this statistic, 90% of the work of the church is done by 10% of the people. And it's not because that 10% wants to run things. It's because... You can't get the other 90% to do something many times. You say, you're just preaching hard today, aren't you, preacher? Well, you know. Churches used to have work days. You know what we do today? We hire somebody to do it, right? Now, we've had some work days here, and I'm thankful that we have, and I know we're going to have some more eventually. But churches used to have work days, and that was more than just coming together to work. If you've ever been involved in a church like that, and you've ever been involved in a work day, it's not just coming together to work. You know what it is? It's a time of fellowship. Amen. We get to work beside a brother or sister in Christ. First church I pastored, I don't know why I want to tell this. First church I pastored, we got new pew cushions. All right? We loved our new pew, but we didn't want to wear them out. So every month, because you know which pew cushions wear out first? The ones on the back. So every month after a business meeting, we would take the, the pew cushion from the back pew and move it all the way to the front. And then there were people just moving cushions all the way to, down the line to the back. So we just uh, rotated our pew cushions. We did that after church. And you know what? It became really enjoyable to sit there and move the puke, especially if somebody had, you know, maybe left a note or candy wrapper or something on puke cushion. We could find out who it was. But anyway, 
We used to do things like that. We'd come together, we'd work together, we'd eat together, we'd fellowship together, we'd enjoy one another's company together. And we've lost that sense of connection. Yes, we have church fellowships, and I'm thankful we just had, was it last week? No, two weeks ago. We had our Christmas fellowship, and we enjoyed that time together. And so we need those things to help solidify us as a body. And companionship is vital to us today. Again, we're living in a world that segments us. We're living in a world that drives us apart. We may pretend that companionship doesn't matter, but you just try to go it alone and see how miserable it is trying to go it alone. So in verses 9 through 12, what Solomon does is he presents us with the advantages of companionship. We're going to go through these right quickly. Verse 9, he says, they have a good reward for their labor. In other words, the combined strength of several can produce a lot more than one can. That's what he's saying. Our mother used to say it this way, many hands make the work light. You can get something done quicker with many people. But working also, as I said a moment ago, creates a bond between two people. And they've learned to depend upon one another. Verse 10, he says, if one falls, the other can pick him or her up. A true friend will be busy lifting you up, not tearing you down. I don't think there's a better example of a true friend than in the book of Acts. In the fourth chapter of Acts, there was a man named Barnabas. They gave him that name, Barnabas. Uh, he was also given the same name as the name of the Holy Spirit, Parakletos, which means one who comes alongside. What did Barnabas do? Barnabas, remember after the day of Pentecost, thousands of people were saved. Some were not from Jerusalem. Some left their jobs, stayed in Jerusalem, and they had no income. They had no food. And so Barnabas sold some land and gave the entire price of that land to the church to take care of folks who were unable to eat, who had no place to stay. Now that's a, that's a friend. That's what Barnabas did. But here's something else he did. The ninth chapter of Acts, there was a man named Saul of Tarsus. You're familiar with him. He had a reputation for tearing up churches, putting believers in jail and that sort of thing. And on the way to Damascus, you remember he was saved. He ultimately became the Apostle Paul. He left Damascus and he comes to Jerusalem and he wants to join the church at Jerusalem. And you know, if somebody came in here and they had a reputation for putting believers in jail and even putting some of them to death and they wanted to join the church, we might be a little cautious. Amen. And that church at Jerusalem was cautious. And they didn't know whether they wanted to receive this man Saul or not. And what did Barnabas do? Barnabas stood up and said, I've heard him preach. I know of his conversion. Barnabas is a great example, a biblical example of a true friend and we need to be that kind of friend instead of condemning somebody that's out of fellowship with the Lord, pick them up, pray for them, love them, encourage them in the Lord's service. Verse 11, I like this one. He said they have heat. Two people can produce more heat than one and that's obviously not talking physically, especially it's talking about spiritual needs as well. We live in a cold world. If you had, now, I'm not talking about the weather outside today. We live in a cold world if you hadn't figured that out. And spiritually, we need to be lifted up. Sometimes spiritually, we may not have enough spiritual strength of our own to be able to go through some of the things we have to go through. You know what we need? We need the spiritual strength of others who will love us, pray for us, encourage us. Amen. Give us some heat. Warm us up. 
We need a godly friend at all times. Now, we all know people, and I don't think anybody here is one of those. I'll just say that. We all know people that when they walk into a room, they can take your spiritual gas gauge from full all the way down to empty. They just take away all enthusiasm, all of that. But we also all know people who when they walk into a room, your gas gauge goes the other way. It goes all the way from empty up to full. And that's the kind of child of God that we need to be. A child of God, a true child of God, should not constantly live in a negative mood. That's one of the reasons I asked you to smile when I stood up here at first this morning. A lot of times I look out and I wonder what I've said wrong. There's frowns on those faces. You know, did the preacher make somebody mad? Or are they just, yes, I know this is serious. And this is a serious time, and I like to be serious when I'm preaching the Word. But listen, we can enjoy being in church too. Amen. We don't need to be negative. A child of God should not be negative. And then he says in verse 12, the first part of verse 12, he says they give each other strength. That was based on the military combat of that day. The military combat of that day was mostly hand-to-hand. And you know, one of the ways they would fight, they'd get two people and they would stand back to back with their backs touching one another. And they would fight off the enemy. Whatever direction they came, they were always facing out forward where they could fight off the enemy. True friends, true friends never stab you in the back, they have your back. Okay? I don't know if you have ever been stabbed in the back before. I have been a few times. It doesn't feel good. But a true friend will not stab you in the back. A true friend won't put up with gossip about their friend. You know what gossip is? Oh, yeah, it's, it's stories that aren't true. That's not, let's expand that definition. I like this one that someone shared. Gossip is when someone says something negative or unkind about someone, whether it is true or not. Amen. It doesn't have to be false to be gossip. We can say something totally true and it's gossiping, it's spreading things. And by the way, the Word of God speaks against gossip and gossips especially in the Lord's churches. And a real friend will do this. A real friend will fight to protect your reputation. I've often said and I will stand by this, whether it's my family or friend, as long as you give me something to defend you with in public, I will defend you as much as I can. Now, in private, I might tell you how wrong you are, okay? But in public, I will defend you because you're my friend. And that's what a true friend will do. And then verse 12b says this, there is strength in numbers. He said a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We're familiar with that verse, I'm sure, quite often. We hear that, threefold cord is not quickly broken. And we think about strength. That's talking about something a little bit more than strength. It's talking about strength, but it's talking about more than strength. You know what it's talking about? Unity. Those three cords are woven together. It's not just three strands of a cord stretched out together. They're woven together. Listen to what the Word of God says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, he's talking to to this church at Ephesus now, speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. You know what he's saying? He's saying your body is woven together. 
Again, as I said earlier, when one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body hurts. It doesn't feel 100%. And your body is so interdependent and so constructive that we just call it woven together. Well, that's what we should be as a church. That's what we should be as individuals. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, get this. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. What I believe that's telling us is that God has this building right here. This, not this brick and mortar and all this. This church building, this body right here, God has fitly, properly formed it together. God has created this body the way he wants to create this body. He's created it to be what he wants it to be. Now, whether it becomes that or not depends on us whether we carry out his will. But God has put people here that he wants here. I'll say again, if God wants you here, you need to be here. If God wants you somewhere else, you need to be where God wants you. Okay? We need to be where God wants us. And God has designed this church just like he has every church. So the building is fitly framed together. It's to grow to a holy temple. What was the temple? It was a place of worship. Holy temple of the Lord. Verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God put this church together. Satan has tried to destroy it. Amen. We know that. We have seen members of this church attacked in many different ways, and it goes on. I can't delineate what's going on, what I know that's going on. I'm not talking about people arguing. with. Them. I'm just talking about problems, difficulties that individual members are having, illness, problems at work, Problems with the outside world. We have a great unity and a great fellowship here. But I'm telling you, Satan's working on us. God's put this together. And Satan can't destroy it unless we allow him to. God's building it together for what purpose? For a habitation of God through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells this church. And that's what I've said time and time again. I want people to know when they come into these services that the Holy Spirit is present in these services. That this is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the building, and by the way, that phrase fitly framed together means to render close jointed together. Close jointed. To organize compactly. It's better to have companionship. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love you, church. Can't say that enough. And I... I don't think I'm wrong. I think this church loves the pastor, you know, and I appreciate that. And then he says in the last part of this fourth chapter, it's better to have a teachable spirit. Amen. Have you ever tried to teach somebody something that didn't want to learn it? it happens all the time, doesn't it? If you have children that were teenagers at one time, you have tried to teach somebody something that didn't want to learn it. And you know what's wonderful about getting older as a parent when they come to you and say, Mom, Dad, you were right back then. I'd just eat it up. I tell you, <laughs> I love it when that happens. I won't get that anymore now, but you know. I mean, she's just honorary enough that she won't do it. Thank you. 
It's better to have a teachable spirit. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. And Solomon gives us the account of a young man who became king. He rose out of poverty. May have even come out of prison. He was not of royal heritage, this young man. Now this old king is. He got his kingdom by inheritance through heirship. He was the son of a king and so he became king. But here's a young man who grew up in poverty. And again, he says, possibly even rose out of prison. Sounds like the story of Joseph to me. Possibly even came out of prison. No kingly heritage. And he rises to power in the place of the old and foolish king. Because even though he was poor, there's something better than money. Even though he was poor, he was wise. We're not talking about with the world's wisdom. We're talking about with godly wisdom. He was wise. See, we put a lot of stock in age today, don't we? Man, if you're old, you must be smart. Bible teaches us to respect the wisdom of old age. But listen to what Proverbs 16.31 says. The hoary head, that's the white head, the gray head. The hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I know some foolish older people. And if they're older than me, they're really old, okay? But I know some foolish older people, and there's, there's no glory in that. But if you're in the way of righteousness, if you're living for God, serving Christ, living and, and teaching His Word to others, sharing it with others, then there is a certain glory for God in that age alone does not make one wise, and age alone does not make one righteous. Amen. That's what he's saying. The old king in these verses took his position for granted. I'm the son of a king. I became a king. Okay. He was born into his kingdom. Verse 14 says, and it says he would no more be admonished. That word admonished means enlightened or warned. Maybe he's thought that he was above that. I've been king long enough. I don't have to listen to anybody. Maybe he was a know-it-all. You know, we all know folks like that in the world. People who, if you don't think they know everything, just ask them, they'll tell you, you know. And maybe this king was a know-it-all. Maybe he thought, again, he was a beyond receiving advice. But whatever it was, he would not be admonished. What does verse 14 say happened to him? He becomes poor. He resigns his crown. He resigns his kingdom. His treasure is exhausted. Maybe he's forced into retirement. And who becomes king? This young, poor, wise man. I say, that's a beautiful story. That is great. Yes, it is. But what happens to this young, poor, wise man? There comes along a second person like him. And people leave him and people go to the second one. You know what that says? Folks, listen, power, position, fame, it's all fickle. It's all fleeting. We have people who are living day in and day out to get that attention. Listen, people's attention spans are short. Their memories are short. They're practically non-existent. And most of the time, the only question they can remember is, what have you done for me lately? And that's often repeated in churches as much as it is in our culture today. A church will get a good pastor, that, and I'm not talking about this one, but a church will get a good pastor that preaches the Word of God, stands for the truth, and if the numbers aren't what they think it ought to be, they'll want to get rid of him and get somebody else. 
we're sort of a showmanship mentality today, even in the Lord's churches. Better it is to have a teachable spirit. I'm not beyond learning things, and I learn things. Boy, this book of Ecclesiastes is teaching me stuff, right? I'm thankful we got into it, but it takes a full week to even understand it sometimes. But as we come to the close of this message, try to tile this together. What we have to see is Solomon's teaching us some lessons. God through Solomon is teaching us some lessons. Wealth and position are not guarantees of success. Fame, life at the top, fleeting at best. And no matter how popular a leader is, one day somebody's going to succeed him. See, I live with the reality. I'm, not, I'm getting closer to that day that the Lord's going to call me home. One of the reasons I preach and teach like I do is so when I'm gone, those of you who are left behind will call the kind of pastor that God wants you to have, see? I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon, by the way. That's up to the Lord. But regardless of how popular somebody has been, his popularity will fade over time. I've told you, you know this, I, for six and a half years I was a rock music disc jockey and thought that and some people say, who are they? I guess everybody will remember the name, but the popularity won't be there. But I thought the Beatles, people always remember the Beatles. You can probably find some young people today who never heard of them. See, popularity fades. It's not lasting. It comes and it goes. And then poverty and failure are not barriers to achievement. Just because you don't have much doesn't mean you can't be much. Okay? And just because you failed before doesn't mean... You can't serve God. I'm going to say more about that, give you an example in just a moment. Old age, we talked about this one, and gray hair don't always mean wisdom. And 100 years from now, if the Lord hadn't come by then, every one of us will be forgotten. Do you realize that? Every one of us. And it's most important that we maintain this humble and teachable spirit especially before God and His Word, but before other people. Life under the sun is unpredictable. Life under the sun is temporary. Life under the sun is fleeting. But listen to this. God knows who you and I are. He knows His children. He knows us. He loves us. We can have wealth by laying up treasure in heaven, all right? Even if we have failed, we can succeed. I remember a man by the name of Peter, denied Jesus three times. But God used him in a great way on the day of Pentecost to preach a wonderful message and thousands were saved. God used him to write two books of the Bible. Here was a man that everybody else would have said, he is a total failure. And Jesus just said to Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And God used him in a great way. We can be filled with godly wisdom and it comes through a study of the Word of God. And then finally, though others may not remember us. This goes back to last week's message. Though others may not remember us, God has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. God's going to remember us. I put on my Facebook yesterday, this is a thought for the new year. I said, even if you don't believe in God, God believes in you. And God loves you. And God remembers his children also. Life under the sun doesn't always make sense, does it? 
I mean, if you've tried living your life under the sun, dust does not always make sense. And the only way to make sense out of life is to live life above the sun. When we talk about life above the sun, we're talking about life that is lived for Christ. Life that is lived with eternity in view. Life that is lived as a child of God. A life that is given to God in service and faithfulness. That's the way to make sense of life. You know, just from a human standpoint, if I were to look at what's going on in this world today, I'd be so confused. I like what Vance Havner said one time. He said, you can take a child of God and you can put him in a dungeon with a Bible and he can tell you more about what's going on in the world than all of the wise acres in Congress. A child of God who knows the Word of God can look at what's going on in this world and tell you where we are and what we're getting close to and that's the coming of Jesus. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't either. But we can know that we have a God who loves us. We have a Savior who died for us. And we have a Lord who wants us to live for Him. As we go into this new year, instead of living the next 51, I guess since today's number one, the next 51 Sundays under the sun, or the next 51 weeks under the sun, let's try living the next 52 weeks above the sun. Don't get so heavenly minded you're no earthly good, but don't get so earthly minded that God can't use you.